Today is June 14th, 2014, and this is episode 118. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And uh, we have special guest host with us today, Tariq Lewis. Hey, Tariq, how you doing? Hi, Adam. Nice to have me. The content for today's episode, the real meat and potatoes of what we're going to be talking about here, we've got guest Jesse Powell, who's a former member of the Ripple Board and uh, the founder of Kraken and a variety of other projects. You've been around the space for a long time, Jesse. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, guys. This conversation, you know, I reached out to you because I want to talk to you about Ripple, but, you know, we've had you on the show once before, but I'd talk about you for a little bit, if it's okay, um, and talk about how you got into the space because, you know, your name and Kraken's name specifically, these have kind of been fixtures. You know, there hasn't really seemed like there's been a commercial success, and I'm kind of curious what your journey has been. You know, how did you get into Bitcoin? Where did where did you come from on all of this stuff? I read about Bitcoin for the first time in March of 2011. You know, I was immediately intrigued by it. For the prior 10 years, I had a company selling virtual items and currencies for online games like World of Warcraft Gold, Diablo Swords, Platinum, RuneScape. We did 20 different games at one point. Bitcoin to me was just another virtual currency like those, but without the disadvantages and without the centralization. I thought that it was going to be fantastic both for the world and you know, just in terms of efficiencies created. We were having a lot of problems in my last business with payments and Bitcoin seemed to solve all of those problems. And I just thought ideologically and, you know, it was just a really interesting idea to think about what would happen if there were a global currency not controlled by any government. That's sort of like what got me into it. So you had this other business. So was that the entry point? Did you just start accepting it with that business or did you create a new business? What was the kind of genesis into working here? It was a while later before that business started accepting Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin had obviously uh, made a lot of sense as a payment mechanism for that business. The problems that it solved were transaction fees on microtransactions, just general friction in the checkout process, having to collect a ton of information about a user because of the fraud risk, the chargeback risk itself, international payments, kids not having their own wallets. A lot of our orders were coming through parents lending their kids their credit cards, which was okay maybe for, for one time, but the kids often would save the credit card information and come back later. Yeah, it and seems so, like it's the credit part of that equation that really presents the problem is that like everybody can have money, right? So if Bitcoin is money, anybody can have money, but not everybody can have credit because credit means someone is trusting you to then pay them for money that they're giving you in front, right? Is that the problem? The biggest problem with the credit cards for us was that, you know, it's a, it's a pull type transaction. We don't know if we have the, the owner's permission to, to do that pull at the time we do it. You know, we just, we're just trusting whoever's actually providing the information to us. At that company, we had a huge department devoted just to checking for fraud and preventing fraud around credit card payments. So, you know, people often say that 
the cost of taking a credit card is you know three percent plus thirty cents, but for us it was probably closer to seven to ten percent just because of the people that we had to have employed just to prevent fraud. I guess you know the credit itself isn't a problem so much like most of these guys are probably credit worthy and, and we would have trusted them to pay us later if we could have actually confirmed their identity. The problem was that just anybody can show up with the ability to take out a loan against somebody else's identity. Even if it is the correct person who took out that loan, they can still say, and it's hard to prove otherwise, that it was somebody else, right? I mean, so it's like being unable to identify positively who somebody is, is dangerous on both sides because it could be fraudulent or it could be fraudulent with someone who really is that, but pretending that it's fraud. Yeah. So that's called friendly fraud where somebody just, they make an order and they decide later they, they just didn't want it or, you know, they have buyer's remorse. So it was actually the guy who used his own credit card. He just decided that he was going to try to reverse the transaction because for whatever reason, he, he wanted the item for free or, or whatever. Or, you know, in, in the cases of kids using the credit cards, the parent might even get on the phone with us and approve that first order and even say, yeah, I approve the next order too. But the kid buys a thousand dollars worth of virtual items instead of a hundred dollars worth of items. And, you know, and then they have a problem with that. So it's just a terrible system for buying things online. That's really interesting to hear you talk about your experiences with credit cards. Uh, Kids, you know, who can't really get their own credit cards was something I haven't thought about for a while. But I imagine a lot of your customers were sort of of that age. What was the nature of the virtual items that you were selling? Like, were they able, could you get them back if once they were sold or were they kind of like Bitcoin where it was irreversible? We never could get them back. They were just like Bitcoin where it's irreversible. And and that's actually what made some of those gaming currencies so valuable. World of Warcraft gold, for example, that was actually probably still is a currency that is used things outside of the game. And back when I was in in that business, World of Warcraft gold was the currency that people would trade with on online gaming forums for services like graphic design. You find a guy or, or a kid, you know, on the forums who you need to do some graphic design service. You want them to make a, a banner for you or a signature for your forum identity. You could pay that guy in World of Warcraft gold. And for most, that was the best way to do it because it was irreversible and you didn't need anything to sign up for a World of Warcraft account. No KYC. There was no age requirement. You could just do it. So it's sort of like the de facto currency for lot of commerce between kids on the internet for a while. Okay, so your first Bitcoin project, maybe we could move on to talking about that. When I first found out about Bitcoin, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it yet. I wanted to do something. I got into mining for a little while, had a pretty big mining operation. When Bitcoin was at a dollar, I sunk about $100,000 into mining equipment. In hindsight, obviously, I probably should have just bought 100,000 Bitcoin. But whoa, that's still pretty serious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so like, so Bitcoin was a dollar. That's an interesting time frame. Yeah, actually, you know, that wasn't really uncommon for the history of my last business. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of the items that were produced that were sold were produced through giant botting operations. Like farming for items was very similar in my mind to mining for Bitcoin. Is it less evil? <laughs> it is less evil. With World of Warcraft. What do you mean by that? Sorry, I, I I don't play these games, so I'm not familiar with the process, but why is it evil? The secondary market in most of these games, like World of Warcraft, is seen as um, 
just very negative for the games and for the economy and by the hardcore players, which are usually the kids, because the kids have a lot of time to sink into these games. And it's usually like a time-based reward system. So the more time you have to spend, the more monsters you can kill, which means the better items you can find, which means the more powerful character you want to have. Guys that don't have that much time, if they want to keep up with the rest of the players, will usually buy items. There are, I guess, legitimate reasons for doing that. Say, for example, the group of friends that I play the game with, they have 40 hours a week to play World of Warcraft. And maybe I I work more. I've only got 10 hours a week to play with them. But if I want to stay at the same level as them, the only way for me to do that really is to pay somebody else to, to upgrade my account. You know, to either level me up or to to sell me the items that I need to stay at the same level of power as my friends, so I can continue to play with my friends. Child labor, child exploitation. (laughs) I can hear it. It's an interesting question about exploitation, and I think that to this point, the rewards have biased towards people who have more time than money. But I think in the last like five or six years, we've started to see this trend kind of shift because real money trading, as it's called, where you're essentially, you know, trading money for uh, somebody else's time in the game and then you get the results of their time in the game just kind of completes that equation because you're right. Not everybody does have time to participate on that level. And for some people, the time is way more valuable than the money. And for other people, Mm. the money is way more valuable than the time. So it's, you know, it provides both sides of that equation. But yeah, looking at it from the perspective of, oh, well, before nobody could pay to get ahead and now they can, you know, it does look bad. The hardcore guys see it as, as cheating. Um, the, the game companies, I think, have tried to play both sides for a long time. Mm, um, just World of Warcraft, a, as an example, um, will regularly ban accounts that they catch engaging in real money trade. Um, but they don't do it so severely that it makes it impossible or, you know, it's, it's not a complete deterrent. It just makes it expensive to do. So I think they satisfy the people that say, hey, you should do something about this. And it's possible to do either. And, and every time they ban an account, because it's not a significant deterrent, they're just selling another copy of the game. So they can say, hey, we sold like a million copies of World of Warcraft this month. But they don't tell you that 500, they actually banned 500,000 accounts that month. And probably half of the sales that they made that month were just botters or Chinese guys or people who had been banned for real money trade just buying their account again. So it helps them in the numbers. It helps them appease the hardcore gamers. And it doesn't stop the real money trade from actually happening. So everybody's happy. Okay, so tell me more about this mining rig that you built. What was it like? I mean, was it just graphics cards or something Well, this wasn't at the time? a rig, was it? This was like $100,000 back when Bitcoin's a dollar. This was like an installation. Yes, it was about... 30, 30 something machines with three of the 6990 uh, Radeon video cards in it. So that was like mm-hmm. highest end video card you could get at the time. It was the best card for mining. Um, and where were you housing all that stuff? Uh, so my business partner at Loot, which was the, the virtual items company, he had just moved to some, to some ridiculous new house in Tennessee and his old ridiculous house was still empty and so we had all the stuff shipped out there and we just set it up in his house. And it was actually, it was a good thing that he had that place because it would have been pretty difficult to find. I mean, we looked around for a while and in California, the, the 
cost of power was was too high, but it was it was reasonable in Tennessee, and he had all this space and um, just finding that density of power was difficult. So what we ended up doing was just we plugged in these rigs. We had thirty something rigs. We just plugged in all over his house and blasted the air conditioner twenty four seven. It was probably <laughs> the least efficient way we could have done this, but. Um, you know, we weren't sure at all. We didn't want to sign like a long-term contract at the data center or anything. And we were just like completely unsure how this was going to work out. But but by the math that we had done at the time, we bought all those machines, you know, and given the hash rate at the time, we were going to make our money back like very quickly. So it was, we were just going to try it out and see how it goes. And if it was going well, then we would move it to, to a more cost-effective um, solution. So you've got this house, it's full of mining rigs, you're blasting the air conditioner, Bitcoin is a dollar each, and you've just, you know, essentially spent $100,000 setting up this operation. <laughs> sure. did, did, it go, did it perform to your expectations? No, because the hash rate spiked very quickly. I guess like shortly after I found out about Bitcoin, everybody else found out about Bitcoin too. So the hash rate, hash rate went up a lot, like way more than it had historically kind of gone, gone up. So that was, I didn't predict that. The rewards were not as great as we anticipated. Also, it took a long time to get that hardware. A lot of the video cards were back-ordered. And so, I mean, it's like the same situation you have now with, with the ASICs and all the pre-selling of those. Is that by the time you actually get your equipment, um, the hash rate has increased so significantly that um, your rewards are, are much less than you expected. And you were probably better off just buying Bitcoin at that time if, if acquiring Bitcoin was your goal. So how long did you run the operation? Uh, we ran it for a few months. You know, I think we got a couple thousand Bitcoin out of it. And then we ended up selling them to this guy. It just became too much of a headache to continue to deal with. You know, machines were like powering off all the time. Someone would have to go over there and investigate what's going on. And video cards would have different tolerances. It got to just be a logistical hassle. So we found this guy in Washington. And there's a thread on the forums about you know us trying to sell all these rigs and there's a picture of them and everything. Uh, this guy in Washington had 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And um, wow. that was insane. So he and his brother fl- flew out to Tennessee, packed up all the rigs, had them shipped back to to Washington. And, um, and so as far as I know, he's still running them. He actually had uh, like a pen testing company. So he was using rigs for other stuff part of the time. So it wasn't just Bitcoin mining. And I remember he had actually lost a box. There was like a $12,000 box of video cards that got lost in the shipment. And some months later, he was actually able to track it down. I think at the, at the FedEx or the UPS facility, but he eventually got it. I'm, I'm sure that cost him a bunch of money. Okay, so uh, by my mental math, this is putting us in like late spring of 2012 when you've just sold these machines and you now are out of the mining game, right? It was probably still, this is probably still in, in 2011. Oh, yeah. okay. This is probably latish 2011. Concurrently with that, we started working on a gaming forum called Ogre, O-G-R-R. And the purpose of that forum was to encourage gamers to trade their virtual items for Bitcoin. 
And we actually, we had a wallet there. We had an escrow service. Um, yeah, I remember that. I didn't know that. We- yeah, it was us. Um, huh. So that was a lot of fun, but the marketing effort that it would have taken to get that really off the ground was kind of more than and we were willing to do and it didn't immediately it's pretty early too were yeah. you guys accepting tokens besides bitcoin i mean like were you accepting dollars or was it just bitcoin? no it was purely bitcoin yeah, so that was real early for a pure bitcoin business yeah and we were actually we'd given away a thousand bitcoin but we had this deal where if you sign up if you're one of the first thousand users to sign up uh, and make a couple posts you you got a bitcoin there were a lot of people that did it and just completely forgot about it and then came back, you know, like a year later when Bitcoin was like a thousand dollars, and like, holy crap! Like, I have a Bitcoin. How uh, much was Bitcoin at that time when you guys were essentially using it as a marketing tool? I think that it was ten dollars. It was around there. Thinking, okay, we'll give away like ten thousand bucks, no big deal. You know, at some point it turned out to be like over a million dollars. So we did Ogre. I think that it was too early. Also, just forms like that require gaining some significant critical mass. You know, you need that network effect to really be useful as a place for people to come and, and trade, you know, just like eBay or, or any other sort of... You never feel like you hit Yeah, that. we didn't hit that. Um, How long was Ogre around? I don't know, I'm going to say like a year and a half maybe from start to finish. We handed it off to some other guys towards the end and, and they also just decided that they didn't want to put the effort into it. One of them is now working for us at Kraken, and the other is being on another project. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Hi, Stephanie here. Would you like to turn your book into an enthralling audiobook? Need a persuasive commercial to promote your company? How about a narrator for your explainer video? Here's where I can help. I'm a freelance voiceover artist, and since 2009, I've lent my voice to dozens of audio projects. To hear some examples of my work, check out my website, smvoice.info. If you like what you hear, I'd love to be the voice of your next project. Get in touch at smvoice.info. I'm really enjoying this exploration of your of your background because, again, I don't know any of this. Um, so after Ogre, you came out of that better off than you went in or worse off? I mean, would you consider that a win in just kind of relative terms? You know, it was a fun project, but... It wasn't, I think in terms of, of business, I think it was a, a distraction. It was like a waste of time from, from what maybe would have been a better business opportunity. We did a mining pool for a while as well called Max BTC. And I think that it might have been the first or the second um, DGM mining pool, which was like this formula that many Rosenfeld created, which... Um, which as far as I know is still the fairest um, way to calculate mining rewards. 
it didn't get traction. I think that it was probably too complicated for users to understand. And people were still paying like ridiculous fees at, at deep bit and um, some other pools. But again, I think uh, with, with mining pools, I think there's also this like psychological effect of having like a large hash rate that, you know, people want to be on pool that seems like it's going to be solving a lot of blocks, whether or not proportionally, it's going to affect the reward or not. We did that for a while as well. And, and it wasn't profitable. We didn't really see a future in becoming a mining pool. We actually thought that P2 pool was going to gain a lot more traction and, and just eventually become the primary pool. You know, we thought distributed was going to be the future and not centralized pools. And, and I'm not even sure what the situation is with that. If there are are competitive with the private mining It seems like ease of use is definitely a compelling factor in a lot of these decisions. Based Just based on looking okay. at the market right now, it seems like P2Pool really hasn't picked up, but it's because it has that extra burden of running your own node, which means you have to download the whole blockchain and all this other stuff, as opposed to just doing work that's fed off of a more centralized solution. Is it the pre-selection bias, like you mentioned, Jesse, or is it actually just the ease of use? It probably the- is just the ease of use for most people. I think that's probably a fair assessment. Where are we at this point in the in the chronology? So you've got this pool, Max BTC, and we're at kind of the end of that story. So where where are we in history, and what's the next project that you move to after that? I, I should have probably reviewed my own timeline before jumping on with you guys. This is, the history is like a bit of a blur, you know. Like so much happened. In no, such I a totally understand. Time. But at some point, you know, we get to where kind of the, the story of Kraken begins, and that is around. June of 2011, when I get a call from Roger Veer, the Bitcoin Jesus from Japan. Okay, hang on. Have we backtracked now? Have we backtracked to before any of these things, or did those things all come before June 2011? Uh, we've backtracked now. So there was there was a lot of okay, there were okay, some got things it. like overlapping with, with this. Um, yeah, I understand how that goes. <laughs> so yeah, we had many things going on simultaneously. You know, and at some point, just kind of phased the things out that we decided weren't worth our time. From the beginning, our goal always was like just to increase Bitcoin's adoption. That's why we did the gaming forum. We thought that that thought that the gaming market was the perfect market for for increasing Bitcoin user adoption because because of all the problems that it solved with payments in that space. Um, we thought that it would see a lot more traction than it did there, and it seems like now. That's starting to pick up, but um, I'm, I'm surprised it didn't catch on sooner, especially given all the commerce that happened in that space between China and the West and, and all the, the currency issues with China. Looking back on it, do you think you have any idea of why it's taken as long as it has? I really don't know. It may be just the younger demographic. Maybe kids aren't into Bitcoin. You know, Dogecoin... Definitely skews a lot younger. That's that's brought a lot of new people into Bitcoin and into the crypto space. So I really don't know. And part of it also be that there hadn't been a Chinese exchange until relatively recently. So that probably part in it as well. So Kraken is a Bitcoin right. exchange, and you guys are based out of the yeah. U.S. Yeah, our office is in San Francisco. Do you accept U.S. customers? I've asked this a couple of times of a couple of different people, and the answer has been different, different times. Yeah, so we do accept U.S. customers. Anybody can sign up for an account. The five states that we're doing national currency trading in, 
They are Alabama, Montana, New Mexico, South Carolina, and Massachusetts. If you're in one of those five states, you can access to the full set of services for all the currency pairs. If you're not in those five states, all you can trade are the cryptocurrencies. So in California... What cryptocurrencies do you currently trade? So we're doing Bitcoin, Litecoin, Namecoin, Ven, Ripple, and Dogecoin. I was just curious. It's interesting you have Ven there as a, one of the cryptos, um, which is a little bit different from the others. What inspired Ven? So we met Stan Stonaker at the Bitcoin conference in San Jose uh, last year. It just seemed uh, like an interesting thing to do. Stan was really cool and really into the space. And um, his currency was interesting. And he's actually been around for a long time. It's something like eight years old. You know, it's a currency that value is derived from a, a basket of other currencies, including carbon futures and, and, and other stuff. And um, it was a really easy thing for us to add. And we always thought of ourselves from the beginning as being currency agnostic and, and supporting more than just cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, eventually we might support um, other commodities or even securities. We thought it would just be an interesting thing to add. It was easy for us to do. Stan was really cool. So we just threw it in there. The trading volume has been pretty low, but it's a fun thing to have. I would like to add some, some other kinds of currencies like that or more even gaming currencies to the exchange as well. We're talking about some of the other cryptos like Vend and, and Ripple. When you look at you know your exchange and performance, you say Vend is a little bit low. I mean, how does it rank? Is it still Bitcoin at the top, Litecoin, and then the rest? Uh, or you know, are they pretty much even? It's, it's Bitcoin first, uh, Litecoin next, Dogecoin after that. I noticed that next has been picking up in some markets. You know, do you see a lot of the action on your exchange sort of tracking the markets like Bitter and any of the other exchanges that some of these coins they may have you know, more volume? Our volume is, is usually pretty consistently a certain percentage of the total market. If the total volume is down that day, then we're down that day. So we're not a, like a separate thing from, from that. As far as next, I haven't looked into it enough to, to know, but yeah, I, I agree it's like it's picking up volume. We try to take a sort of a, a wait and see approach to a lot of the new currencies that, that seem to be gaining traction. I, I think we've seen over and over that stuff looks like it's gaining a lot of traction and maybe it does for a couple of weeks and then it just fizzles out. Yep. We've got limited dev resources. We've got to really believe that a, a currency is going to be around for a while or there's some significant uh, financial incentive to add it early. And for most, there's not really. And, and we also want to, we want to be able to do a significant amount of diligence on a coin, um, you know, like as we did with Namecoin. And when we did it with Namecoin, we discovered that critical flaw that, that could have killed Namecoin, but seems to have at least in part revived the Namecoin developer community to come back and, and work on it again. So, um, we don't want to add a coin that we haven't thoroughly vetted. We're trying to protect our users both from from just bad coins and from um, you know from from pump and dumps. We think it, it we think it should it should mean something when we add another currency. So when we think about a currency like Ripple, what does it mean for Kraken now to have that currency? When we added Ripple, it was a long time ago. It was it was very early, 
And um, the idea of Ripple was was a bit different than what it has become today. We're going to continue to support Ripple. You know, like I've, I've said publicly, I, I think that protocol is awesome. Uh, I think that the IOU system and, and the gateways and distributed change all great. Um, you know, the problem for me really is just in, in the way that it's distributed. And, uh, and so that's kind of where things have diverged from, from the original vision, at, at least the original vision when, uh, when I came into it, you know, very early on and what has happened today. Um, you know, in, in the beginning, I, I met Jed at the first uh, the first Bitcoin conference, and we'd actually talked before over email when I was at Mount Gox back in June of 2011. And then when we got back to San Francisco after the Bitcoin conference, um, we started talking about Ripple and and Jed's idea for that. And so that's how I got involved with that, and I was excited about just the idea of it and, and the plan for the distribution was much more generous and, and much much more accelerated than the plan that has been executed uh, by Ripple Labs. We were hoping to give most of it away very quickly. Ripple Labs has, has taken a different approach to the distribution, which I think is, has greatly slowed the adoption from what it otherwise could have been. So I think it'd be really good to go back to kind of the basics of when you were getting involved with Ripple and what sorts of things, what, why you were looking at this and saying, of all the things that I have available to me to do at this particular moment, this is something that I want to help come into existence. What, what, what's, what's the vision behind Ripple? Uh, has, and has that changed at all, or is it just the implementation that hasn't exactly been right for yeah, you? I think Jed's original reason for, for wanting to do Ripple was that he hated how wasteful Bitcoin mining is. Uh, and he did some math and he figured out that if Bitcoin becomes like the global currency, the mining power, you know, years from now is, is going to end up being something like 7% of all power consumed in the world. And he, he just thought like the future was very dismal and, and it was very wasteful and there had to be a better way of establishing trust and, and, operating the network without mining. So I think that was the impetus for it. I did see that as, as wasteful, although I didn't, I didn't agree that it was necessarily a problem. You know, I saw it more of, as the price you pay for the best currency ever. But Even with your experience um, with mining? Yeah, I mean, of course, that, that level of, of uh, power consumption would be extremely wasteful. But... Uh, I wasn't thinking that, uh, you know, we, we totally had to do something about it immediately. Um, I guess I was mm-hmm. that probably something else would come along or something would change to, to make that more efficient. But I did see mining back then. The problem in my eyes was the, the 51% attack, you know, the, the network being attacked by a malicious government. Because back then it wasn't very hard to do. It was going to cost something like $25 million to, to take over 50% of the network. You know, so for a government to do that would have been nothing. That to me was like the more immediate problem. Of course, the power consumption problem year, years later would have, would have mm. been an issue as well. But uh, Ripple solved 
both of those problems, you know, without mining, um, you didn't have the 51% attack, uh, and, and you didn't have, um, the wasteful electricity consumption. So now ripple, um, as you're talking about it, I'm familiar with this, but there was a ripple that also was Jed's project before this ripple as a project was started in the mid 2000s, yeah, so was, right? It wasn't Jed's project. A guy named Ryan Fugger started that the way that the original ripple worked. Um, it wasn't decentralized. You had, you had to have like these centralized authorities kind of over who, who was owed what it's very similar to what exists today with the IOU network and the trust system, the trust lines and all that stuff. And trust played as a use for, for the ripple that we have today. But, um, that was a, a big deal in the beginning. The ripple of today has moved away from the trust lines, the idea that community and people that you know can essentially lend each other money as sort of decentralized lending format. Is is that no longer part of, you know, from your perspective, what Ripple yeah, is about today? I don't think that it's about that at all today. I think that Ripple Labs has shifted more to focusing on the gateway system and, and the creation of, of IOUs through that. So question, hypothetically speaking, if, if I were to fork Ripple right now and go back to that community model, would you list Potentially. Me? For, for <laughs> me, I would want to see if, if, we're, if we were to list a Ripple fork, I would want to see a predictable distribution model that made sense. What would that look like if you, if you could describe a predictable distribution model? You know, I think that you that could either sense. find a way to introduce mining. Uh, maybe you could have some sort of contract that ties a distribution of Ripple coin to coin on some other crypto network, like to Bitcoin mining or to Dogecoin mining. You just explicitly state how you're going to give away the coins and what the schedule for doing that's going to be. And if I trust you, then that would be enough. So that's a really interesting point that you bring up is that, you know, for me, certainly that was my single largest and primary complaint about Ripple was that it had this gigantic chunk of coins that there just was no stated plan for. And so because it so outweighed the size of the market, it it's impo- was impossible to look at the tokens and say, OK, well, these will behave in any sort of way that I can anticipate because I have no idea when this huge black swan event where all of this stuff suddenly becomes available or previously it wasn't. You know, I mean, somebody's going to know about that in advance, but chances are pretty good it's not going to be me. And so I'll be the loser in that situation. Right. You know, it seems like that was one of their biggest problems with adoption yeah. just at its core. So a lot of people had trouble getting over that, myself included. And, you know, in the beginning, there was a plan to to give away most of the coin very quickly through through Facebook giveaways, through other social networks, through like random airdrops and there were a ton of crazy plans, but they were going to happen very quickly. Like, like within a three to five year period, basically all the coin would have been given away. Hey listeners, the world is aflame with concerns about 51% attacks and mining centralization. You've asked us to do an in-depth episode not so much illustrating the technical problems as highlighting real and lasting solutions to this issue. The only problem is, we're not the experts here. 
If you're working on a solution to the mining centralization problem, whether it be a proof-of-work switching algorithm, tree chains, or whatever, send an email to apply at letstalkbitcoin.com to schedule an interview that may be included in our upcoming Mining Solutions episode. And I've been meaning to mention, you remember LTV coin? We're in the final preparation stages and are testing out our mass distribution tools on the real Bitcoin network now. There will be a full episode with all the details soon, and I'll be very pleased to share our work with you after this long wait. That's enough out of me. Back to the show. Ripple Labs has two problems, really. One, Jed and Chris gave themselves, and with Arthur together, I'll, I'll have 20 billion XRP. You know, I think the amount of XRP that Jed has said he's about to sell is greater than the total amount of XRP that has actually been given away to other people. So you were a member of the board of Ripple Labs, and recently, you know, these problems became big enough that you decided to resign. And also, as you're mentioning, uh, one of the founders, Jeb McCaleb, also announced that he was he, he hasn't been part of the project for a while, but he still has all of his tokens. And now he's going to be selling his tokens over a period of time. Can you kind of talk to us about how that happened yeah. inside? Yeah, Jed... You know, obviously, he's been involved in the company from the start. At some point, hired Chris Larson on to be the CEO of the company. When that happened, those guys allocated themselves any sort of lap or or vesting period or anything like that. They just like they had it and they could do anything with it at any time. Time went on. I I obviously had a huge problem with that when I found out about it. I thought it was going to be a, a huge problem for being willing to accept that and want to adopt and, and support this protocol. So time went on, I thought eventually these guys would like realize that this is a huge problem and, and they would just give the XRP that they had back to the company. Time went on. They didn't do that. Jed actually had said that he would give back his XRP if, if Chris gave back his XRP. And Chris wasn't willing to give back his XRP. Jed sort of was committed to holding on to his XRP just to be able to use it as leverage to get Chris to, to give it back at some point. I find it f- funny because in the beginning, when I first became of, aware of Ripple, maybe a little over a year ago, I guess, XRP was never really meant to be a value token. Like it was supposed to be a st- made the Ripple network work. It wasn't supposed to be like something that had a lot of value or was almost acting as like equity in the company, um, right? That is the pitch that they've given, but I think it's it's pretty clear that they depend on that XRP in part to fund the company and they do see it as as a currency on its own. This has always been one of the kind of schizophrenic parts about the Ripple, you know, public relations is that on the one hand, yeah, it's like, oh, it's a stamp. And then on the other hand, it's a, okay, well, you can go buy some now if you, you know, want to appreciate along with the company. This was just a incongruity that kind of never yeah. got itself yeah, sorted so it's, out. It's one of those crazy things that, that I'd always had a problem with it. I knew it was a, a problem for the company. I knew it was a problem for adoption. Obviously, as, as big of a problem as, as two guys having 18% of the total money supply the bigger problem was still that, that Ripple Labs had the rest, you know, and there wasn't a transparent plan for, for distributing that. 
So one of the things that Ripple Labs has done is, you know, I know people who they've given Ripple to, you know, they give it to developers when they go to, you know, like a seminar or something yeah. like that, or they'll have workshops and basically like does seem like they're giving some of it out, but it's just like, it's, it's that big numbers thing, right? It doesn't really matter if you're giving out hundreds of thousands at a time or 50,000 at a time, if the total quantity is in the hundreds right. of billions of units. Yeah. What is it? What have they given away in terms of a, a percentage of the total? It's tiny. Right. Exactly. It sounds like Jed's actions and your kind of continued questioning about these strategies and it seeming like they weren't changing. It seems like that kind of catalyzed yeah, this action for you. Yeah, there some other things that, that I wasn't happy with that happened. Just kind of some treatment of some of the employees that caused a few employees to quit the company. You know, some treatment of, of another board member that was there very temporarily. That that stuff, and then... But Jesse, I mean, would you say that Ripple still is a success? It has attracted, you know, major players such as Merriman Capital, uh, you know, even Crosspoint Ventures, I mean, may have diverged from the original mission, but it you know, seems to be going as a success and, and acquiring the attention of, you know, large institutional players, which seems to be a good thing and, and possibly, you know, overall rewarding. Yeah, it, it might very well be that that this approach turns out to to be a winner for them. I don't think that acquiring the attention of these guys is necessarily, you know, it doesn't constitute a win. I think they've got about 90,000 wallets created so far. How many actual users? I don't know, but you know, maybe a safe, safe estimate is something more like 50,000. That's relatively small in terms of the adoption of a, a cryptocurrency. What do we think that Bitcoin has? Or what do we think that even Dogecoin has? Right, the Dogecoin right. subreddit is more than that. But doesn't it also act as a backend for other services that do have um, more users? Not that I'm aware of. I know they've announced the intent to do something mm. with Fedor Bank recently, but I think that that is still a long way off from from being a reality. Jesse, let me talk to you about some of the fundamental, um, like the decision that was made here, because you mentioned that the the part of the vision that you liked was this kind of person-to-person credit system, right? Is that a fair assessment that that's one of the parts about this project that you like and you feel like um, has been sort of downplayed? I wouldn't say that that was the biggest thing for me. Uh, I did think that that was really interesting. It maybe could have been a replacement for Hawala and you know, it was definitely a better way to do Ripple that, that Ryan Fugger had started out. And I, I don't think in the beginning we actually had this concept of gateways it feels to me like there's a little bit of a mismatch with the market that, you know, with the Bitcoin market and with some of the products that Ripple is providing. So to a certain extent, it kind of makes sense to me that they would go after gateways because they've created a system that looks very much like the banking system, except it's a lot more efficient and it's a lot faster and it's a lot, I mean, like it's a, it's a lot more efficient. So why wouldn't it make sense to go to that type of user first and say, hey, we can solve your problem, which is that you're doing this and it costs more than it should. We can save you money. Why isn't that a good strategy when the problem is friction into and out of fiat currency? Yeah, That's what a gateway, gateway is, is, right? It's just a way to get some physical asset onto the Ripple blockchain. So these are the issuers. So it's a decentralized issuing system. And then these issuers, okay, I think I understand. So so what's the problem with going after that type of user? Was it that if they were going after that type of user to the exclusion of uh, smaller, normal users? Or just in general, do you think this was not a good approach? I think it's an interesting a- approach. And I'm glad that somebody is doing it. Somebody's putting all this effort into, you know, into biz dev and into to preaching the word of, of crypto to all these institutions. 
Um, I think that's a valuable service to the community. But I think in terms of a business, I think that, so because Ripple's open source, there's nothing stopping somebody from forking Ripple. Like Tark just said, he's going to go fork it. You know, what if, what if Park did what people saw as, as a, a more fair fork? What would be the switching cost for, for all these institutions who to date, you know, are just thinking about it? What if there was another version of Ripple that had like 10 times the user adoption? So they're not vesting right. people and they're giving yeah, away the so sauce. Th- there's not, I don't see how it's really sticky. I mean, I can understand you've got some, some interest in the XRP that you have on the existing network, but you've also got this huge risk that, you know, Ripple Labs is going to do something with the uh, other, I don't even know how much it is, like tens of billions of XRP that they've got, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen with that. And so the currency, the price might be stable today, but who knows what'll happen tomorrow when Jed sells all of his XRP. You know, he tomorrow. said he gave it. He said I'm going to start selling in two <laughs> weeks, and I think yesterday was the the end of the two weeks for him. So he also didn't say on what sort of schedule or you know what velocity he was going to be selling the XRP. So maybe he's just going to start selling 10 XRP a day for the rest of time, or you know, or maybe he's going to dump it all in one day. We don't know. But again, like unpredictability, just like having a gun to your head. You know, I, th- I think it, it's probably worse even that doesn't just dump it all at once because we have to keep always have to wonder when is Jed going to dump all his XRP right exactly it might be a crash if he dumped it all at once but then it would be over exactly the market would adjust and it'd be real like wild man out there who with with the ability to manipulate the price so it's not something that I would want to buy into at this point and if Tarek went out and forked it and said here's exactly how I'm going to distribute and and you can trust me for these reasons and whatever like I would much rather have my XRP, my coin on that network than on this unpredictable Ripple Labs network where Jed and Chris have like the nuclear option basically. And um, and we don't know what they're going to do. And then the IOU system, if institutions actually do adopt Ripple in, in some capacity, I think the switching cost for them is very low as well. And if they don't see XRP as a currency, maybe it doesn't matter to them. Maybe they can... But then that piece of it doesn't really benefit other people very much either, right? Then, then they're just using it as a, as a messaging system and their demand for XRP is just, you know, it's, it's tiny. It's whatever they need for messaging. It's not, it's not going to really otherwise increase the value of the XRP on that network. So I think what you'll probably see happen is Eventually, some fork will, will gain a lot of traction, and everybody's going to shift over to that, and and the the gateways are going to support that as well, and then everyone's just going to move over to the fork. From an underlying technology standpoint, this is actually solid tech. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been looking back into uh, the way that they're doing user created assets, and again, it's like it's really pretty high level. You know, the tools that they have are quite good. And yet, whenever I hear about Ripple, I'm not hearing about the tools that I have to create user-created assets and do all of this other stuff with, or the fact that somebody can, that I can create an asset and then I can uh, sell it in Ripple and basically accept any type of currency that can be accepted by a Ripple gateway. So, I mean, like, there are all of these really interesting kind of uh, ease-of-use features that seem like have been, in fact, built into Ripple just by nature of the technology. And yet, there are all of these problems because yeah, of stuff exactly. that's ancillary well, to the this technology. This stuff has been a huge distraction for them. 
And it's not, it's not anything they, they couldn't solve this afternoon. You know, they could release their plan for, for distribution later today. Jed could sell off all his XRP. Chris could give it all into a nonprofit foundation that also has a predictable sale schedule. And then we could all go on appreciating the protocol. Is it safe to say that that's the secret sauce here is just coming out with a plan? The details of the plan almost don't matter so much. It's just the yeah, plan and then sticking I, I to totally it. totally agree with that. I think predictability really is is what's valuable about Bitcoin. It's, it's what I dislike about the Federal Reserve. You know, I don't know how elastic the money supply is going to be on any given day. Yeah, I think predictability is what allows people to invest in, in something. Jesse, you've been in the space for quite a long time. And before that, you were working in, in a token space before, you know, before Bitcoin was even around. So, you know, given that history and what you've been through over the last 10, say, years, is there any guidance or just like absolutely don't do this or absolutely do do this best practices that come to mind as really generally applicable things? I'm going to Jared Kenna from Trade Hill and say, do not start an exchange. Probably starting a Bitcoin business with the, the United States as your focus would be a bad thing to do at this point. Taking customer deposits is generally not worked out well for people. Don't build yeah, the types of businesses that you've built in the last couple of years. Uh, is this all, are you saying this all because of like, a, from a legal standpoint that it can get you in yeah, trouble well, or yeah, just the United States other is headaches? It's just one market. And uh, I think that the legal headaches here at this time probably aren't worth the opportunity. Like if you've got a business and you're just trying to get to product market fit and you know, you just want to see if it works. The United States isn't the place to do that because you're going to start off day one with like a million dollar legal bill and you're going to spend all that just out that you can't do anything legally. And then it's going to cost you, you know, another couple million dollars to get all your licenses and, and time uh, to do it legally. So I would say avoid the United States if you're just starting out. Like, Don't even think about it. Wait until you have a, a product that's working and then think about entering that market. Um, and in terms of taking customer deposits, I think if you can, there's some interesting multi-sig services um, being developed. You know, CryptoCorp, Ryan Singer's company from Trade Hell is doing interesting stuff. BitGo, you might be able to get uh, a deal with a wallet like Zappo that would hold customer deposits for you. There's hash trust that's doing multi-sig. So I think that if you can find a way to get multi-sig into your model instead of actually holding the coins yourself, then you'll be much, much better off. Thanks for listening to episode 118 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for this episode was provided by Jesse Powell, Stephanie Murphy, Tariq Lewis, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and Denise Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.